Hello, friends, family, enemies, and strangers of all kinds. Welcome back to Extra Milestone, your weekly film anniversary podcast where we take a trip all the way to the, the past to discover the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I am your host, Sam Noland, and I am joined by one of my very good friends, one of my favorite guests to have on Extra Milestone, and someone uh, who, if you don't know, you will love by the end of this episode. It is back on the show, Emily Kubankanik. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, and you're really flattering me with this <laughs> intro. That's that's what I do. I, I I only have on guests that I like, so <laughs> let that let that say uh, whatever whatever it will. As I morph into Jeff Goldblum for what I'm sure will not be the first time over the course of this episode, uh, Emily, it's it's good to be to be talking with you again. I'm excited to not remember lots of names with you again. Oh my goodness. I hope we're better this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Last time was not good. That was not our, either of our finest hours when it came to recalling names off the top of our heads. And we got a lot mm-hmm. to talk about today. So my fingers are crossed. My toes are crossed. I think it'll be a fun time. Yes. So with that in mind, we have a triple feature today. Uh, this is something something that I try not to do often, but there are times that call for it. And this is one of them because we have three radically different movies that span the the cinematic art form in many ways, uh, uh, you know, time-wise, genre-wise, uh, even quality-wise, some would argue. And we're going to discuss all these things over the course of the episode. And we have decided, and this was not easy, listeners, you don't even know how hard this was, <laughs> but we have decided we're going to be discussing these movies in chronological order. We felt that that would be the best way to present those. And as such, the first film that we're going to be discussing is another silent film. This is the second one that we've done together. I remember last time you were saying uh, that the silent era is uh, is an area that, that you're looking to explore a little more. So I thought, hey, I know what I'll do. Yeah. I'll have Emily back on to talk about Sergei Eisenstein's 1925 milestone some might say extra milestone classic battleship potemkin Emily, I'd like to know right off the bat, this is the question I always ask of uh, my guests, so why not do it again? I'd like to know, what prior to seeing it, what was sort of your uh, association with Battleship Potemkin? Have you heard of it? What, what, like, what kind of things did you know about it? Let, let me know and the listeners. I have definitely um, heard of it and kind of um, the history around the fact that it was based on a real uh, event and kind of the propaganda aspect of it. But I really, I'd never watched it before. Um, didn't really know much of how the style of it and everything. So um, this was very new to me for the most mm. part. 
Nice. And as I mentioned a second ago, uh, the silent era is not. Uh, uh, w- w- how would you describe it? Like, it's not your cup of tea, or just not something that you're quite as familiar with. I well, I'm really familiar with um, like the history of it, and I think we mentioned this last time. I'm more familiar with uh, the lives of the people who were involved <laughs> than the actual movies. Um, but I have been watching a few. Um, I watched. Lois Weber's shoes since the last time we um, talked to us. It's just absolutely phenomenal. Um, yeah. And uh, a few others. So I'm doing my work. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Lois Weber is a fantastic director. Yes. Uh, I, I first learned of her through her short suspense. I don't know if you've seen that one. That came out in like 1917, I think. I think they just put it in the um, National Film Registry this year. Honestly. Oh, did they? Mm-hmm. Along with Shrek. Along with Shrek, yeah, of all yeah. things. That's that was that was all I heard about it. So I guess oh, my goodness. I, I guess it makes sense. This is a weird year. Like as if yeah. it wasn't already weird enough. <laughs> F it. Shrek. National Film Registry. Listen, mm. I'm not gonna argue. It's a significant movie. It gets referenced a lot, but just weird, weird, weird. Mm-hmm. But yes. <laughs> getting beyond that. Uh and so and so you watched it. Um several nights ago if i uh, remember correctly and i'm curious just just to sort of uh, uh clarify real fast this is a thing we used to talk about on the show a lot not really as much of a thing anymore but i feel it's significant how did you get a hold of this movie did you watch it through a service or through a dvd or something how'd you find it uh I, it was on criterion channel um yes yeah so that's where i watched it Nice. As did I. I saw that it's also available on Amazon Prime. Uh, that version is hmm. about 45 minutes longer. And I was like, what is this like an oh. uncut version of the movie? Turns out it just has a documentary about Sergei Eisenstein edited hmm. into it. So I'm like, OK, I'd be interested to see that. So I, if yeah. if I had done my due diligence as a podcaster, then I would have seen that. But alas, <laughs> Time is finite. So uh, mm-hmm. I just watched the regular version. Not a long movie, about 75 minutes. Uh, and so having now had a few days to sort of mm, reflect on it, what did you think? What did you feel? What was your reaction to Battleship Potemkin? I really liked it. I wasn't sure. Um, I don't know. I just didn't know what to expect, really. But it was really engaging and exciting, um, and the visuals were great. I I think it um, warrants watching today for sure. Yeah, today, as in like in the modern era, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I was most sort of flabbergasted by is that, and we'll get into detail about this movie, but this is. 95 years old the movie is the actual events that take place within it occurred in 1905 so that's Mm. like over a century now and yet they feel just as prescient kind of like to an eerie degree to a lot Mm -hmm. of things that uh have been happening just this year as a matter of fact and it's something that I suppose had never had just never really occurred to me the first two times I saw it. I first saw this mm-hmm. back in late 2015, if memory serves. I think it was on Netflix and it was expiring. Can you imagine mm-hmm. that nowadays, like a <laughs> silent film on Netflix? Oh, I know. It's. I, I think the oldest movie they have is like, I don't know, Gremlins or something. Like That's probably 
<laughs> I don't think it goes much further back than that. I kid, I kid, of course, because Netflix, I know you can take it, Netflix, <clears throat> but it's just so weird to think. They used to have a ton of silent movies on Netflix, mm-hmm. and they just slowly got rid of them at all. Maybe back when I watched it was the beginning of the end, but I remember mm-hmm. seeing it, and it was at a time when I, w- I think I had just signed up for Letterboxd, weirdly enough, the uh, <laughs> film review website, and so I was getting to explore a lot more of cinema that I knew even existed, and so... I was excited to see it and I really dug it that first time just because of the just I had never really seen anything like it. I wasn't that familiar with silent cinema. And then weirdly enough, an interesting thing happened the second time I watched it, which was a little under two years later. Matter of fact, I watched it the day I graduated high school because <laughs> what better way to celebrate the graduation of high school than by watching this Russian propaganda film from the 1920s that was revolutionary in editing. That's always been my personality is I don't like celebrating things in traditional ways. I like to just sort of act as though things are normal and sort of do something unexpected. Uh, Mm -hmm. And of course, we're in the holidays now. So the holidays are just not my jam, but Mm -hmm. that's just always kind of been my thing. And the second time I watched it was right after I had spent like almost the entire year up to that point, like four or five months, just taking in as much silent cinema as I possibly could. I went to like a silent film festival. I was watching them just on repeat throughout every all day, every day. Matter of fact, that's when I saw The Gold Rush, which uh, we talked mm-hmm. about a, a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was like, I'm going to rewatch Battleship Potemkin with all this newfound knowledge and experience with the era that I have. And for whatever reason, that second time didn't hit me as hard. Couldn't hmm. tell you in a million years what it was. I just wasn't into it that time. Uh, I think my rating dropped like a whole two stars or something. It was really strange. And then I watched it again early this morning and I'm like, oh, this is great. Like it's really, really fantastic. I was just, I was just a moron that second time, as it turns out. <laughs> this, yeah, this is really special. There's a reason it's so well acclaimed and so sort of iconic among uh, among film scholars and and fans. Otherwise, so I want to get a little bit more into the legacy in a minute here. But first, I want to just, I want to talk generally a little bit about, uh, about the movie. What are some things that uh, that you that you liked about uh, Battleship Potemkin, Emily? What sort of stuck out to you as you were watching it? Um, I think the I don't know the way that the characters act are very interesting to me. Um, I I really don't know very much about um how accurate the events are compared to the movie but i think just watching also the sheer number of people that are in this movie um especially towards the end and like i don't know i'm just fascinated by the fact that um i don't know this was all made in the way that it was um and i do think that definitely the editing um is super interesting um but yeah i don't know and it is emotional to Mm me um which propaganda inherently is but um in a way that i think regular movies are too so um really interesting 
Yeah, I think I definitely agree with everything you said. And I happen to know a little bit about sort of uh, the production of the movie and also the events Mm. that inspired it that might shed a little bit of light on that. So in regards to the historical accuracy, as it turns out, the first two acts of the movie, of of which the movie is split into five, and they're separated mm-hmm. by intertitles. Uh, they each have a name, much in the way that uh, some of Quentin Tarantino's movies, minus the nonlinear stuff, it's just sort of segmenting mm-hmm. out the plot. The first two segments in which the uh, this rebellion occurs on a ship where the soldiers who are fighting for the Russian Navy are being just sort of grossly mistreated and uh, by their superiors stage a mutiny stage revolt that ends up going off i would i don't want to say without a hitch but they end up Mm -hmm. winning uh they uh things end up going well evidently everything after that is is highly dramatized for the movie everything Mm -hmm. on the steps the entire encounter Mm -hmm. uh late in the movie with the couple of warships um that's all made up. So, uh, but the the actual event, the mutiny, is sort of the basis that Sergei Eisenstein sort of expanded upon to make what mm-hmm. is the movie we saw. What's most interesting about the production of that movie is that it was initially, it was envisioned as sort of a grand cinematic sort of cherry on top, sort of star on top of the Christmas tree to what was this thing that was going on in 1925, which is sort of a lot of uh, art, like uh, in, in various different mediums, there were, there were you know, uh, paintings and uh, stage plays and songs and everything specifically about the Russian Revolution, uh, the mm-hmm. events in 1905 and subsequently after that. I don't know too much about all those things that happened in the wake of this Um I really should have done more research, but the idea is that Battleship Potemkin was sort of meant to be this kind of grand magnum opus of this movement, this sort of uh, smaller movement that was going on in the USSR at the time. Mm. And it was originally going to be this really huge epic with like eight different stories of things that were going on at that time period. And it was June and they said, all right, you have until December to finish the movie. And Sergei Eisenstein was like, I can't do that. And he's John <laughs> Mulaney, apparently. I can't do that. I'm going to make it about one thing. And so he did. So what we essentially get, actually, is the budget, for all we know, and the storytelling zazz and passion for eight stories all poured into one. And it really shows. I wonder what it would have looked like if those other seven stories had been told. I'm sure they would have been separate movies and stuff, but it would have been really interesting to see even more like this. But what we got is really fascinating. And the all the actors, at least as far as I know, uh, the vast majority of the actors were non-professional and mm-hmm. They were utilized in a way that was sort of being revolutionized in Russia at the time, which is where they would allow editing, cinematic editing, to tell the story as opposed to, you know, dialogue and, uh, and, and plot and stuff. And so you'll see a lot of really quick shots in this movie really quick takes where the it's not necessarily the images it's the juxtaposition of 
the images and it's the uh, the visual metaphors all throughout this movie. And what we get as a result is a really, really con- just consistently engaging and kinetic story where there's not really a lead character. There are a few standouts, but really it's a way of harnessing the cinematic art form in a way that hadn't been used before to create an emotional response and that was kind of the ethos going in was this is going to be edited to be as emotionally resonant as Mm. possible and it sounds like it was it sounds like it was a success with both of us right yeah i mean i think though i was expecting the one sailor to really be the um main person throughout the whole movie and then obviously something happens to him like Mm -hmm halfway through and i was really surprised by using that um especially i don't know so long ago um it was very interesting to see that play out yeah this is before the production code so there's a lot of things they wouldn't have been able to get away with like even 10 years later it was also in russia so they were under a different sort of uh uh, leadership i almost said dictatorship just a little freudian thing they were Mm -hmm. under they were under different auspices at the time when it came to what they could and couldn't show so this is this can be a very graphic movie a baby dies in this movie Mm-hmm. it's so sad it's a it's a very famous shot of a baby carriage rolling down the steps and we don't see it happen but it's it, it's very very heavily implied that uh this baby did not have a good day so yeah they're they hold nothing back when it comes to showing uh, just how you know just how uh ruthless these events were and and mm-hmm. how the powers at be can be you know Mm -hmm. yeah to give a little just a little background on kind of the plot of the movie uh what happens is that it's as as you can probably tell by the title the battleship potemkin this russian warship for the navy and the sailors on it uh, again are being horribly mistreated and it's one day they decide we just can't take it anymore you know there there are some belligerent officers that uh, just are not being kind or respectful to them whatsoever and then they're served these cuts of meat at, that are disgusting like it's the Ugh. things it's the thing it's like remember in rocky when rocky's in the meat cellar and is punching those things for practice imagine those but they're just out in the elements unrefrigerated uncovered in maggots it's mm-hmm. it's horrendous mm. uh they decide we can't do this we, like we refuse and they're like oh is that insubordination i hear fine we'll we'll just execute you all mm-hmm. and as they're like about to all be gunned down just on the ship as t- to be sort of made an example of they appeal to the the gunners emotions and say no let's mutiny instead and so they do and what happens is that their actions ultimately inspire the people of Odessa, which is the city in the Ukraine, not the city in Texas. That confused the hell out of me <laughs> when I first saw it five years ago. Odessa, Ukraine, inspire them to sort of rise up and revolt against the oppressive leadership. And of course, the leadership fights back. And because they're in power, they have more money and they have guns. And this is where I think kind of the modern analog 
that we're seeing comes in where it's the the oppressed people wanting equality wanting freedom wanting to escape from under the thumb of oppression and because they just don't have the firepower they end you know it ends up being a full-fledged fight you know is that is that kind mm-hmm. of what you were picking up on too yeah i mean they're obviously uh strong in numbers but it's remarkable how people in power are still able to you know go against that yeah this is not a new thing and and Mm -hmm. i love the way i love the way that it's sort of uh the suspense is sort of built because what's happening is that the people of odessa just sort of the townsfolk are all gathered on the steps like to sort of show their support for the the soldiers on the battleship and everything who are Mm -hmm. revolting and rebelling and stuff and then suddenly it just dawns on them it's you can almost hear the marching as mm-hmm. essentially the fuzz shows up like i love that's kind of the way i thought about it and <laughs> it's just this full on massacre and it's intensely effective um, mm-hmm. and then what happens and and uh, i'm i'm curious if you felt this way this is probably my only problem with the movie is those are the first four chapters kind of in a nutshell then the fifth chapter has them has the uh, the the battleship Potemkin of the rebels? They go out to sea. They're about to be sieged by more loyal warships uh, who have been sent by by you know the powers that be and everything. And then at the last second, they decide, nah, we're going to be friends. That rang just a little false to me. That seemed like a little bit too much of a of a of a happy ending. And I could kind of tell that that was made up. Did you feel the same way about that ending? Um, it definitely makes sense to me that that's, um, probably fictionalized. Um, and I am curious to see or to read on like what actually happened. Um, but watching it, I don't know. I'm used to the happy endings on, um, older films. So I just kind of accepted it, I think, but I get why, um, you'd have a qualm with it. Yeah, I think if if memory serves, what actually ended up happening is that the Potemkin was retaken by the Russians mm-hmm. and they gave it a new name and sort of reclaimed it. And that was just kind of it. Like there was no big display of power, at least not in mm-hmm. the way that it's dramatized. Um, but yeah, you, it, it's, it's definitely a movie with an agenda. Is that mm-hmm. a fair thing to say? Yeah. Yeah. Um- Although I do, I love the ending imagery of them waving to each other on both um, yeah. ships, honestly. <laughs> just this little showing of solidarity. Like, it's not a bad mm-hmm. ending. I just mm-hmm. felt it it was not quite in keeping with what have been built up so far. It's a very yeah. downtrodden movie for pretty much all of the first four acts. Like, there's that brief moment, like, right before the massacre on the steps where things uh you know things seem like they're going well on the on the home front and everything uh it it just felt a little a little out of place to me but yeah mm-hmm. it was certainly a certainly a very effective movie um i found out something very interesting and this is and i did not know this when we decided that we were going to be talking about this movie emily you're not going to believe me when i tell you this but you may remember on the last 
extra milestone we did together, we talked about the Gold Rush and Sunset Boulevard, right? Mm-hmm. Guess which two directors both claim Battleship Potemkin is their favorite movie? <laughs> um, Charlie yep. Chaplin and uh, uh, Mr. Weiler. Exactly. Wow. I could not believe it. Like the it's it's just one in a million, you know, what are the chances? The 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 astronomical odds that the exact two directors that we talked about last time, their favorite movie would be our next subject of discussion. So I just thought that mm-hmm. was very poetic and serendipitous. So I thought <laughs> I thought you'd like to know. Um, yeah. What are what are uh, what are some other things that sort of uh, that sort of stuck out to you or affected you about Battleship Potemkin? Like, do you think we uh, do you think it was pretty much covered, or are are there other things that we've yet to unearth? Um, I guess all I like the other things that I would say um, are I don't know I, I think watching silent movies, especially this one that does such an interesting way of showing emotions through images. Um, It's so impressive to me that when filmmakers of these like um, early years are able to do things with no sound and very little, you know, special effects and they're able to make such an emotional impact on you. And for the most part, I mean, like those are more impressive to me than, um, any cgi or like whatever kind of um special effects are in stuff and so um watching this it's just especially the um stuff in odessa is just so remarkable um to watch them kind of construct the story through like you said not necessarily just what they show but what they don't show and um I always love the thrilling and suspense that happens when they leave images out that would be um, gruesome because your mind makes up such a horrible image on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. You, you could almost say that this was, you can draw the line directly to the Blair Witch Project from that. Am I understanding mm-hmm. that correctly? <laughs> Emily Kubin can <laughs> You could um you could assume that, yes. <laughs> oh my. It's so funny that you mention um sort of the or or the the contrast, I should say, with like kind of the CGI bells and whistles that they have today. I was trying mm-hmm. to think because I'm thinking of other movies from like right before this that I've seen. The one that comes to mind first is Greed from 1924, who I it only just occurred to me in this second directed by eric von stroheim from sunset boulevard i did not do that on purpose (laughs) but the connections are just running rampant in this episode but that's a movie that's that's a that's an epic movie of just sort of the rise and fall of a couple as uh as greed sort of overtakes them go figure Mm -hmm. it's a movie called greed Mm -hmm. that movie is very conventionally edited I would I would say the power of that one is more in the imagery than anything. But just when it comes to actually the way that the scenes are cut together, it's very it's very standard, at least from what I remember. It's been a couple of years. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think 
if I'm an audience seeing this movie in 1925 or later in other nations, um, Mm -hmm. is this like the 1925 equivalent of something like Avatar now where like it's so i know that sounds silly but is it this is it kind of the same thing where this is like nothing we've ever seen before we didn't realize Mm. that this could be done of course it helps that the movie is also fantastic and really emotionally Mm -hmm. resonant and powerful but uh i'm like I, i would be fascinated to talk to someone who saw it at the time of course there's no one alive today who can remember this most likely Mm -hmm. but even still, I wonder because because the movie was universally acclaimed when it came out. Like it was heavily censored, but the people who did get to see it were like, "Oh, this is remarkably powerful," and mm-hmm. they were right to think so, and they're still mm-hmm. tr- they're still correct today. Do you have any kind of a Do you have any kind of thought on that about just what this would have been like to have not seen anything like this before? I mean that that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about it that way, um, and. I'm sure there were people like me who would gripe and say, all right, like what they did before. And it's way more (laughs) impressive uh, than this garbage, but um, it is definitely, I mean, I'm sure it would be as jarring as um, the train movie that people were terrified of. um, Oh yeah. The great train robbery. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's really interesting to think about it that way. Yeah, because I'm trying to, th- I, I was thinking that like the kind of editing that's in this movie, and I know I'm really kind of going on about that aspect of it, but it it really is the most significant element of it. Mm-hmm. You can you can draw the line directly from that to a lot of, you know, the big, exciting action blockbuster or sometimes even just intimate dramas that we see today and the way that it cuts back and forth between multiple things happening at the same time the way it sort of distorts time and alters it by uh juxtaposing certain scenes with other scenes and things like that uh Mm -hmm. this really and 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 actually uh last night i just so happened to watch uh sergey eisenstein's first movie which came out earlier in 1925 that one was called strike and it was about a very similar thing uh, except it was at like a uh, a production plant like a factory and a result mm. took place so he certainly had mm, an ethos a subject matter that he liked to explore uh and the editing in that movie is just as dynamic so he had it right off the bat and mm. and you can tell that it was very experimental at the time and mm. it just i guess it just hit a nerve right off the bat and never fizzled out and never should because this is kind of pure cinema right here. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that's fair to say? Yeah. And I also think like, uh, similar to like the, uh, Czechoslovak, Slovakian, um, new wave that happened when the, um, communist government funded a lot of films, the stories that they chose to tell, um, in this way, with the filmmakers that they end up doing is just really fascinating um, because you wonder, I don't know, like how would this story be told in the hands of someone else who didn't have that hand on editing or um, didn't have a vision of imagery in the way that he does. Um, 
So, yeah, I would love to just kind of compare the subject matter that they choose to do because a lot of the Czech movies are about World War II and um, things like that, but heavily kind of, um, I don't want to say censored because they weren't, but, or yeah. maybe, but just kind of skewed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of them were sort of insidiously commenting on like the incompetence of those mm-hmm. in power. So uh, mm-hmm. that, that's that's a very fascinating uh, uh, comparison you draw there. As a matter of fact, by sheer coincidence, I just watched uh, the Fireman's Ball a few weeks ago. Mm. That's that's kind of like that. That's a early film by Milos Forman, who directed One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Recent Extra Milestone, and Amadeus, a future extra milestone. Mark my words there, uh, <laughs> among many others. And yeah, that that's that's certainly a very like they're certainly of a piece. Um, they're just mm-hmm. have they just have a different sort of I, sh- I'll, I guess I'll say genre about mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, there's definitely it, it, I'm sure there are dozens of movies uh, from this time period about similar things that have just completely faded into obscurity. And I'm not even talking about the ones that have been lost to history forever, Mm. which a lot of silent movies have. Mm -hmm. I bet there are some that still exist out there that are just really unremarkable. Uh, But we're lucky because Battleship Potemkin is quite remarkable, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. (laughs) And it, uh, it reminded me of... Another movie from the silent era, from Russia, as a matter of fact, so from the same nation, that's also a bit of a milestone in editing. And it got me to thinking, Is would this be a good introduction to the silent era? Battleship Potemkin, I mean. I think I, I saw it relatively early in my uh, silent era education as well would you show this to someone first do you think this would get them jazzed enough to want to explore further into the uh uh into the art form hmm um i i'm not sure i mean i think it really depends on the person i think um people who are into action sequences um of today's cinema, I think this would be a very interesting thing to start them on. I definitely mm-hmm. think that it's a movie that um, is kind of essential to watch when you are visiting silent film um, along with, you know, the other classic things. Uh, but yeah, that is, I think it could get people jazzed. I think it could also um, maybe lose people without, um, I don't know, a lot of plot and kind of the conventional storytelling things in in Hollywood silent movies. Mm -hmm. I think you make an excellent point. I think this would potentially be a good one, but I think it would also be important to let them know if you're trying to inform someone on the era that not all of them are like this. Like, mm-hmm. let's be clear. Uh, but also, I think you're right when you say that it is it is clear to see the connection between this and a lot of the movies we see now, almost a century later. Uh, so I think it would certainly not be, and I, and I use this word in air quotes, mark my words, it would not be boring in the way that a lot of people maybe assume that silent cinema is, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so I would say probably start with a comedy because those are just mm-hmm. 
it's impossible to go wrong there. I think this mm-hmm. would be a great introduction to dramatic silent cinema, which is arguably even richer. Uh, but again, I say arguably, so yeah. who knows? <laughs> Here, here's a movie not to start with when it comes to the silent era. And this is the one I was talking about earlier, which uh, this reminded me of very starkly. It is a movie called Man with a Movie Camera. It is an abstract uh, documentary directed by uh, Giga Vertov, who is known kind of only for this movie. Like he did a, some other work around the same time period, but it's really this one that is th- the reason his name is still remembered today. And it is almost not even really a movie. What it is, is I think it's just a little over an hour of just footage shot in these four Russian villages in the late 1920s edited together in a really interesting way. No plot, no through line, no characters even, although there are people, of course. It's just life. And it's just kind of 60 minutes of like almost pure cinema because that's the way that cinema kind of started. If you see a lot of the really early silent films, like from the 19th Mm -hmm. century, they're just sort of filming stuff happen. There's the famous one of the train arriving at the station Mm -hmm. and the workers leaving the factory. There's not much of a narrative there besides they just thought it would be interesting to shoot that. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. This is very much kind of a similar thing, but what it does is it it does that but like a bunch of times it's it's like battleship potemkin like turned up to 11 just with a dash of cocaine or whatever <laughs> drug was going around at the time uh <laughs> it's really inaccessible if you're unfamiliar with the era but i think once you're sort of acquainted with it then it's a great place to go to just keep, see kind of the essence of the silent era just sort of play out before your eyes. Uh, I think mm. it's really hypnotizing and it's, it's real. it's one of my favorite movies, frankly, uh, just because of, just because of how kind of essential it is and how pure mm. it is essentially. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we've, I think we've uh, talked about a lot of really interesting things. So if, is, unless there's anything else that you had to say about Battleship Potemkin, what do you say we move on to our second feature? I don't, I'm ready for the second one. For oh, yeah. Sure. I'm, I'm really glad to talk about this. One. I think this is the only one that we'd both seen uh, beforehand, correct? Yes. That's very good. And uh, I'm so excited to talk about it because it is from the year 1950, a movie that isn't talked about a ton nowadays like it's not one of the most popular 1950 movies to kind of a casual cinema fan but i think it really should be this this is Mm -hmm. another one of my favorite movies it is henry coster's harvey we predict you'll greet harvey with laughter and rousing applause how do we know because for five long years audiences did just that on broadway for the most talked about pulitzer prize winning comedy of our time And now at last, Harvey comes to the screen, better, richer, funnier than it ever was on the stage. Starring James Stewart as Elwood P. Dowd, America's most amiable citizen. With hilarious Josephine Hull and a grand cast. And once again, the critics are raving. Says Luella Parsons. And Walter Winchell. 
Hedda Hopper. So, Emily, I'll ask the same question that I did before. What's your story with Harvey, the six foot, three and a half inch <laughs> rabbit? Um, hmm. I remember watching this um, years ago. I think, I mean, I am a huge Jimmy Stewart fan. He mm-hmm. is a fellow um, Pennsylvanian. Um, I just, he's just unlike anything anyone else um and so i was going through all of his movies i think um and watched this and just couldn't believe that it was a story (laughs) i was just like this is just unlike anything i've ever heard and um so i hadn't watched it since then i actually um i wanted to i went to the jimmy stewart museum that's in um Indiana, pennsylvania and they have the Mm -hmm. rabbit that was in the stage production there on um yeah it's just sitting on um like a set chair that was for jimmy stewart no um no protection around it or anything like they really trust people which is very um jimmy stewart there's probably someone there's probably someone in the costume who if anyone tries to take it (laughs) hey maybe i don't know he didn't say anything when i took a picture next to him but um keeping a watchful eye (laughs) um but after that and then i didn't end up re-watching it just because life's crazy but um so i was really excited to revisit it um for this nice yeah it's this is one i've actually seen a handful of times and i recall i think the first i ever heard about it was actually was actually twofold and the first one is really weird it's on (laughs) The TV show Whose Line Is It Anyway? I don't know if you if you're familiar. Yes. There was this random throwaway gag that Greg Proops made one time where they were playing a game called Multiple Personalities, which is just one of the funniest games. And they only played it like a half dozen times, which is a goddamn shame. But <laughs> they would take three they would have three actors on the stage. It's an improv comedy tv show if you don't know they would have three actors on the stage and they'd each be holding a prop and it would be completely random they'd have like binoculars a map a telescope something like that but the secret is each prop corresponds to a different personality and these would be in the form of celebrities that they'd have to impersonate and the actors on that show have a varied skill level when it comes to impressions it's always been my (laughs) dream to uh to play that game someday but alas i know that day may never come but there was one time where i think it was jimmy stewart braveheart and liberace i remember that so specifically Hmm. those were the three and greg proops had the jimmy stewart prop and just randomly said oh oh, look look over there it's my friend harvey and i was like what is that that's got to be a reference to something so i looked it up turns out it's this movie harvey and then i don't think i heard about it again for a few years until and listeners you if if you listen to the show for any length of time you knew i was going to bring this up i discovered this list empire magazine's top 500 movies 
of all time. And hmm. at number 129 was this movie Harvey. I was like, oh yeah, there's that's the whose land is it anyway thing. You know what? I read the description. Sounds wacky enough. I'll give it a watch. Turns out it's a very sincere and melancholy kind of a kind of a character piece while also being perfectly functional as a comedy i think that's probably mm-hmm. my favorite thing about it is that it is equally effective at both like there's not mm-hmm. one uh, uh aspect like not one genre leaning in this that ever overpowers the other i think that's that's really inf- uh impressive about the movie mm-hmm. do you do you concur with that oh yeah i mean as i was re-watching it I was just thinking about, I just, it's just remarkable to me the way that they're able to make this funny, but also not entirely um, demeaning to Mm -hmm. someone who would be this way in real life. Um, And I, I truly think it's because of who Jimmy Stewart is and like the kind of person that he can be on screen. Um, because I, I just can't imagine anyone else. I know they remade this and I will never <laughs> watch another version of it because I just can't. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was going to rewatch it a few years ago. I was doing this podcast with my friends, Anthony and Jason, and we were doing an episode about the best and worst remakes ever. And I was looking up random ones that I haven't seen. And that was on my list. And I just I simply just ran out of time before recording mm. the episode. So in another life, I would have watched that one instead of something else. I've never gotten to it. And honestly, outside of that very specific context of doing a podcast about remakes, I don't really have any interest. This was adapted mm-hmm. from the play, the stage play by Mary Chase. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Several of the actors in the movie uh, performed in that play, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. So they know these characters very well. Jimmy Stewart played this character on stage for uh, six months, I think, somewhere in the ballpark of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the Blu-ray I have, there's a little audio introduction by Jimmy Stewart that he did in like the early 90s, I think. So oh. lots lots of retrospect. Yeah, it's it's, it's really adorable. Like, oh, th- th- this is one of my favorite pictures that I ever did. <laughs> and uh, I, w- I wish Will Ashton were here just for, just for a little while so we could do Jimmy Stewart impressions together. <laughs> Will, if you're listening, you know what to do. But let's move on. <laughs> so... Uh, and yeah, and, and something very, very interesting that he said in this, uh, introduction was that the hardest character or or the most impressive character to pull off, I should say, is Josephine Hull, who plays Vida, Elwood's Mm. sister. Elwood is James Stewart. And she actually won an Oscar for her performance in this and rightfully so, I think. Mm -hmm. And the way that Jimmy Stewart sort of articulated it was that, because she's his sister, and and I, I suppose we should give a little rundown of the plot, uh, just, yeah. just in case, because <laughs> this might sound <laughs> very strange if, if people don't know. Uh, you know, Emily, I'm, I'm curious, if you had to sort of summarize this movie just in a couple of sentences, what would you say? How would you describe it to someone? Oh, my goodness. I'm always very bad at this. <laughs> um, I'd say it is about... Um, a very well-meaning man who has an an imaginary friend, air quotes, um, named Harvey, who is a giant Mm -hmm. rabbit. Mm -hmm. And his family 
and those around him um, try to make sense of it, but it just becomes a bumbling um, mess of a a time. And in the end, they all kind of learn to appreciate um, who he is and um, the fact that he can uh, see a six foot rabbit that's not there, supposedly. Yeah, supposedly. There is some mm-hmm. evidence to the contrary, which I find very fascinating. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think you just put it together perfectly. If 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 we were in an elevator together, I would have just gotten off on my floor wanting to see this movie. So, All so right. very nicely done. Um, yeah, and, and the thing that's always struck me about this movie is that you were mentioning earlier about how the movie doesn't portray uh, Elwood P. Dowd. James Stewart's character in any kind of demeaning light. And I think it's quite the opposite, actually. I think what we mm-hmm. slowly find out over the course of the movie, but not even slowly, actually, come to think of it, it's it's apparent kind of right from the jump, is that Elwood P. Dowd might be the least crazy of them all. <laughs> yeah. And he's definitely he's definitely um the one who's the happiest person, I think, out of everyone. Exactly. And we see immediately that his entire family, of which we've got his sister Vita, uh, Josephine Hole's character. We've got her daughter Myrtle, played by the actress whose name I forget. So take a drink. It's already happened. Um, <laughs> the actress. Uh, Victoria Horn plays, uh, plays Jimmy Stewart's niece and josephine hole's daughter they're kind of the principal cast and they are flagrantly intolerant of any of elwood's in air quotes nonsense from the very beginning Mm -hmm. to the point where they're trying to get in big with the high society essentially there and it's almost it's, it's kind of a weird plot point to modernize but they're essentially trying to marry off Myrtle to like a rich man is basically Mm -hmm. the gist I get is that they're trying a la a portrait of a lady on fire minus the portrait. They're just trying to impress, uh, you know, some well-earning man who will, uh, uh, who will bring pride to the family. And they, uh, their, their, uh, their mother, has passed away recently. And I get the sense that they're kind of living off the inheritance of that. They have this big mansion that they live in. And every time some high society guests come over, they make a point of getting Elwood the hell out of the house. <laughs> and he likes to spend a lot of time at Charlie's, which is a bar, a tavern, some call it. And we see right off the bat that Elwood's a very heavy drinker, is never more than 10 minutes away from a martini, it seems, <laughs> and has this sort of a sort of this happy drunk, in air quotes, way of carrying himself. And I think that certainly kind of informs the character. But again, as you were mentioning, he's also kind of the most uh the, the 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 nicest of them all certainly it's jimmy stewart it would be hard not to be every mm-hmm. single person he meets he just makes them feel like they're the only person in the world and he's got mm-hmm. this is always my favorite quirk of the character he's got a stack of business cards in his pocket that are not for a business they're just for elwood as a man oh you you really should take one of my cards and now now if you want to get a hold of me call me at this number and not that one that that's that's the old number right there does that to literally everyone he meets and 
the funniest part to me is that he act, he also invites everyone to dinner. <laughs> like they're they're gonna have a dinner party in a couple of nights. I really want to see that dinner party. I hope everyone goes. Like I would love to see just even a deleted scene about that. That would be mm-hmm. really funny. <laughs> but yeah, there he he's kind of the most free of pretense of them all. Just has no has no agenda. Has no face that he needs to put on for them uh Mm -hmm. doesn't isn't out to get anything from anyone and what we see over the over the course of the movie is how infectious and how therapeutic that can be and also how hard it is to be that person and that's where the real poetry of this movie comes through wouldn't you say Mm -hmm. and i think how hard it is for people to believe that someone can just be that way Mm mm-hmm it's almost like they're they're suspicious in some way mm-hmm. like they're trying to suss out some ulterior motive like what are you playing at here like mm-hmm. they're i think something very interesting is that throughout kind of the first half or so of this movie there are a lot of instances in which in which how should i say this in which elwood p dowd's sort of strange personality trait is kind of humorously obscured from the characters he meets like they're always interrupting them just as he's trying to introduce harvey (laughs) before Mm -hmm. they can realize that he has this uh has this notion of a giant six foot three and a half inch rabbit and i will specify the height every time so don't (laughs) don't uh, uh don't think i won't do that but it's it's clearly a movie about uh i would say empathy but i feel like that's maybe a little too simplistic about sort of meeting someone on their own terms and sort of accepting who they are, even if that, even if there's someone who you disagree with or that's kind of opposed to you. And I think that's certainly something that Elwood P. Dowd preaches as well as practices. And it's Mm -hmm. really, it's really quite inspirational actually at the end of the day. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, one thing, um, one thing that I did get to thinking about, though, as I was rewatching this, and I it, it it never occurred to me, is Elwood, and I think it's kind of refuted at the end of the movie. But regardless, is Elwood too nice? Is there a line that can be crossed between uh, common courtesy and stuff and getting walked all over? Essentially, like, is there a time when you should? stand up for yourself and i think the conclusion of the movie would say in this circumstance no but i'm curious if that ever if that occurred to you as you were watching this Hmm. yeah i never um i never thought about that i mean i guess he does a little bit in um when they talk about if he's a drunk or not and he Hmm. doesn't really admit to it and he just says you know i i enjoy a drink uh and they're like, oh, like every day. And he's like, well, yeah, but like, I don't, he doesn't admit to it or really um, let them categorize him as that way. But uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I can't imagine him being any different. Um, and I I kind of like that maybe um, that's not a subject of the movie because it would be really hard to balance the two of like um making a point and then also making that point um Mm -hmm. if you know what i mean 
Yeah, I think th- this there's a lot of complexities in this movie that just sort of reveal themselves to me with every single time I rewatch it. Uh, and that's that's kind of what I was getting at a little bit. Um, I think another way to describe it is that there's a way to read this that he's doing it for his own survival, essentially. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a way of saying, like, listen, this is a cruel world. And for people like me who are just a little different than most, like that's all there really is to it. I'm just, you know, I'm just a little different than a lot of other people. And just by the, by the sheer nature of that, of having something that a lot of others might misunderstand upon first glance at the very least, that it would behoove me to be as nice as possible in every other context to kind of make up for that. You know what I'm saying? Like we, there are mm-hmm. only a, there are only a couple of characters uh, in the beginning of this movie, I should say, who accept Elwood P. Dowd for who he is. Among them, Charlie, the bartender, or I assume his name is Charlie. I might, I might be wrong there, but <laughs> the bartender is in on this, so to speak, and has no issue with it, and is like, oh, yep, uh, let's another drink and is another you know three dollars for me why not you get the sense that it's kind of a pragmatic thing but there's also there's also a um what, what's the word a, a kinship in mm-hmm. that bar that you can tell elwood p dad feels it's kind of like the the modern lingo i've heard to describe this kind of thing is finding your tribe finding the place where you fit in most where with people who understand you and everything and that being kind of a a safe haven a sanctuary to be who you truly are and i think that's a really that's a really fascinating thing and the fact that most of the movie takes place in like a mental institution of all places Mm -hmm. is is really telling of the way that they have to kind of be most of the characters i should say have to be kind of forcibly convinced and not for uh, undue reason but they have to be convinced to see the good in this situation you know Mm mm-hmm that was um one thing that i realized this time uh watching it was a lot of movies that are adapted from uh stage plays you can kind of tell because they're pretty central in singular um settings inside or um stay in one place for a very long time but this one did not feel like it to me at all i think it does a really good job of um kind of expanding the locations a little bit. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's a very interesting uh, uh, thing to take notice of because, yeah, a lot of a lot of plays have just a very finite number of locations. I'm not aware of how much this was altered from the stage version. It's my understanding that the, the spirit is there, but I'd be curious mm-hmm. to know if there were like any incidental locations or scenes and stuff that were added for the purposes of the movie. So I, I would be fascinated to find that out. This, this is a play that's still in production to this day. Like there have been tons mm. of uh, productions of it. Matter of fact, I, there was a, there was one, at uh, here where I live in Denver in the theater scene hmm. a few years ago. I can't remember exactly when, but it was when I was in high school and went down to the theater district, essentially, which is just a couple of buildings downtown. Mm. Um, hmm. 
and saw posters for a production of Harvey. So it's still out there somewhere. It's kind of like the elephant man. It never goes away. Someone's always mm. doing it because it's a really mm. juicy role. You got to think that this is yeah. uh, a lot of the roles in this movie. Matter of fact, are so rich and so layered with, you know, just multiple uh, uh, sort of ways of approaching the character that it would be any actor's dream. And indeed, a lot of them do make the best of it. And on that note, I want to get back to uh, Josephine Hull, who I sort of got sidetracked from earlier. The -hmm. thing that uh, Jimmy Stewart was talking about in that audio introduction on the Blu-ray I have was that her role is kind of the hardest to pull off because she has kind of that balance all the way throughout of understanding that yes this is my brother and and thinking that like he needs to get help and stuff and that we're not going to get anywhere from outright rejection but also this is throwing a wrench into our plans my daughter's plans and i to you know just go about our way in the world and we've got to figure something out we've got to come to a conclusion you get the sense you very much get the sense that this is just kind of the culmination of a lot of things that are that are taking place off screen like obviously this has been going on for years and this is kind of when it all comes to a head mm-hmm. is the sense i get where lots of characters get involved and everything um because uh, Josephine Hull has gotten in contact with the local law enforcement who are in charge of keeping Elwood away from the house while they have guests over. And one of the funniest things that happens in this movie is they have like their agent, their man on the street that they're going to send out. It's like, (laughs) all right, go out there and take care of it. And this guy walks out into the hallway, slips on like a bar of soap and takes one of the worst falls I've ever, ever seen like it was <laughs> it's it's a insane tumble and slides directly to the door of like the clinic and a nurse opens up the door and is like oh the doctor will be right with you so i always thought that was a hilarious joke um, mm-hmm. but yeah there's definitely a lot of history a lot of rich history to these characters and i imagine their uh, kinship in the stage version really informed that a lot mm-hmm. i definitely think vita's th- the funniest character Um, the whole time. And so being able to pull that off and never getting, I wouldn't say she's annoying ever. Um, Mm. just kind of crazy in her own way. Um, but constantly just high. She's pretty high energy the whole movie too. Um, seeing that pulled off, I'm sure is not an easy, um, performance to do. I, I think, the uh, kind of the key to her character is that she is being thrust into a situation against her own volition, against her will, that she has no idea how to how to uh, take care of. Like, who do you talk to for a problem like this? I mean, it mm-hmm. seems it seems relatively obvious to us now that we just sort of, you know, meet them on their terms and maybe maybe seek out psychological help or something like that, but. You can tell this is this is a time when that was probably just not as much of a thing or not like a go to solution or anything. So Mm -hmm. she's trying to take care of it the only way she thinks she can. And of course, it leads to a lot of hijinks along the way. And and this movie just never loses pace, which is really awesome. Mm -hmm. And eventually they all come to this really kind of divine 
enlightenment at the end. And this this movie just puts a smile on my face. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I I'd be curious to hear if anyone has ever seen this movie and just not been put in a better mood because of it. You know. Yeah, I don't want to meet those people because I can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. You know, I think, uh, do you think that uh, Josephine Hull is like the MVP of this movie? Or or is there, like, how do you even choose, you know? Do do you have a thought on that? (sighs) I mean, I don't know, because I know that her role is probably something that's very hard to pull off, but also, um, Harvey's a, a really hard or not Harvey. Um, <laughs> uh, I was going to say Jimmy's- Harvey appearing in this movie as himself. <laughs> yeah, that's great at the end. Yeah. Um, but Jimmy Stewart, I'm sure, I don't know. I, I think that's a hard character to pull off too. So, uh, it's between the two of them for mm. sure. Honestly, I think, and and if we're expanding beyond the scope of just the performers, I really think that Mary Chase is the MVP to to sort of construct <laughs> this story, exploring this facet of society. The idea of something that, and I know there's like an actual term for it, but the one that I kind of uh, like to use myself is mental classism. Like it's 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 classism but not in an economic sense like they're both like like elwood and and uh, and vita are very well off again they they live in this big mansion so it's nothing to do with being impoverished or unfortunate in any way it's just all about the different way that people see the world the different ways that people see the world i should say and mm-hmm. to make a movie about that that is one like totally powerful like it totally hits it totally comes across while also not being depressing is really impressive it's just heightened enough that we recognize that like this is a bit of a this is a bit of a fanciful kind of fantastical situation and indeed a lot of the a lot of the characters a lot of the events that take place are very stagey you know what i'm saying like you can tell Mm -hmm. they were written and rehearsed kind of ad nauseum uh and i I don't want to say it doesn't come across but it, it doesn't come across in a bad way i should say and yet to to have that be just as powerful as just, you know, a, a straightforward story about this kind of thing, uh, I think is the most impressive thing of all. And, and that it's just so much fun to watch and has so many uh, funny bits and so many emotionally genuine bits is, is what really uh, unlocks my heart when it comes to this movie. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I don't know, it's always really impressive to me when writers are able to um, consider a concept that to anyone is insane. Um, Mm. But a lot of the best stories and movies come out of that, of just kind of allowing yourself to go beyond the traditional um, stories that you want to tell or finding a way to be different um, in telling, you know, uh, the themes that you're talking about. Um, I don't know. I, it feels really vulnerable to be able to do that. And so um, seeing it so well done in this, I'm like always very impressed. 
Yeah, I think the vulnerability is really the key to this movie, because what happens over the course of it is that you see everyone starting to let their guard down, most notably. And this always I always die laughing when this happens at the mental ward. They have kind of the warden of the place. And what happens is that towards the end of the movie, the warden ends up becoming Elwood's patient like lays down on the little couch and is just <laughs> telling all of his problems to Elwood like I'm just so unsure of myself and I don't I do I have the uh do I have the ability to really run this place and everything and he kind of gets mm-hmm. more humiliated than anyone and Elwood's just like oh well why, why, why don't you tell me about how you're feeling and that kind of thing and mm-hmm. I always just really die laughing but I think more than anything what we find out is that there's this one scene which takes place in an alley behind the bar that has always been my favorite scene in the movie mm-hmm. where Elwood just kind of kind of just pours his heart out and tells the entire story of like well now I I I always wanted a friend and I wanted to be that friend to others i wanted to be this source of positivity and i figure if i can do that then i've led a life worth living and what we realize a couple of things in that scene is a kind of the entire deal with his character Mm -hmm. and b that from the description of this movie you would think as you as you mentioned early in this conversation that Elwood is probably going to be like the subject of the humor in this. And what we realize is, no, the joke isn't on Elwood. He's telling Mm -hmm. the joke, you know, Mm -hmm. it's really remarkable. Yeah. The monologue in that scene is um, just really great. Mm hmm. Yeah, and uh, and one thing, and this is kind of random, but I just remembered it. There's a scene where where Elwood get has a painting made of him and Harvey, and Harvey is invisible, of course, in the movie. But in this one painting, we see a painting of the giant rabbit and Elwood. I want to mm-hmm. know who made that painting. <laughs> yeah, and how. Like, did Elwood just describe what Harvey looked like? Or did they also have Harvey vision, essentially? Like, whatever you Mm want to call it. So that's always been a funny little detail for me. It makes for a really humorous scene with with, uh, Vita. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And then another... And then uh, one other thing is that there's... There's this kind of there's this scene towards the end where they're in the mental mental institution and Elwood has decided to make a little bit of a compromise. I won't I won't give away too much, but has just decided like, well, if 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 that's what everyone wants, then I'm I'm willing to go along with that. And it reminded me of this impression that Jim Carrey did of Jimmy Stewart. That was kind of the purest distillation where, and I'm not going to do Jim Carrey's bit, but just look up Jim Carrey, Jimmy Stewart. It's the perfect summarization of everything that Jimmy Stewart is and was the face, the pinnacle of wholesomeness. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think Jim Carrey really nailed it. And this is, this might be my favorite of Jimmy Stewart's performances. And he was well into his career. He had already been established as like one of the great actors. Like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, the shop around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh what, what what are some of your other favorites of that era? 
Um, the Philadelphia story, obviously. Yes. Um. <laughs> little sneak peek. Listen to Extra Milestone in a few weeks if you want to hear a little mm -hmm. more about the Philadelphia story. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of other ones. I mean, yeah, those are the ones that I think of the most. Mm -hmm. But there's and a lot. I mean, I appreciate the very small ones. Um, he did one with Carol Lombard, which I love. Uh, I think it's called Made for Each Other, um, mm. which she is such a comedic queen. Um, and so <laughs> I was so happy to see them together at least once. Um, but yeah. And of course, it's a wonderful life. How can we forget? Yes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I feel like this might be the best jimmy stewart role that kind of really gets to the heart of it and it's really some of the most perfect casting in movie history i think and yeah it all amounts to what is just what is just one of really my favorite movies and i always just love when i get to watch it again and i'm glad that i got to for this uh for this episode so is, is there anything mm -hmm. else that we that we haven't really gotten to yet that you wanted to bring up um i guess just the fact that um I love how this movie kind of states and shows like everything ends up the way that it should. Um, you know, Myrtle ends up meeting someone uh, who works at the mental institution, like someone way different than what they're aiming <laughs> to marry her off to, um, yeah. which is just wonderful. And then like, um, one of the doctors and the nurse end up realizing that they should be together. And so, um, I don't know. It's just really remarkable to see his, um, effect on people. And it really makes you realize, I don't know, the things that you can do for other people. And, um, yeah. <laughs> Elwood, I want to see it emblazoned in brass. Elwood P. Dowd ultimate wingman really plays a <laughs> lot of matchmaker in this movie mm -hmm. that's very <laughs> impressive to me and yeah all, all i need is my friend harvey here and I'm, I'm happy with that i think that's a wonderful note to leave the movie on and i just i love the ending so much and i love how it doesn't there are a number of places that this story could have gone i'm glad that it went to the one it did so i'll just mm -hmm. i'll just say that and so i think if that's everything about Harvey, then we can move on to our third and final feature of the evening or morning or afternoon or whenever. What do you say? <laughs> I'm good with that. I'm very eccentric today. And, there, and there's a reason for that. And that is because we are talking about a movie that neither of us had seen until just the past couple of days, which is fascinating. It's not often that this happens on Extra Milestone, so I'm excited to uh, get to discuss it. It is Jonathan Lynn's 1985 dark comedy, Clue. Every person in this room has the perfect motive Stand back! for murder. What do you mean? Murder. But only one of these suspects is the murderer. Is it the timid Mr. Green? Why are you screaming? Because I'm frightened! What? Screaming! Or the militant Colonel Mustard? Oh, if I was the killer, I would kill you next. Huh? I said, if. 
half Mrs. White, who helped her husband on his way. What's the matter of life after death? Now that he's dead, I have a life. Ah! Miss Scarlet, who's helped many men along the way. Practice makes perfect. Huh. Professor Plum, who's looking for a way. I'm looking, I'm looking. Mrs. Peacock. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Or did the butler do it? Nah. Yeah. Paramount Pictures invites you to an evening of mystery. Let us in! Let us in! Let us out! Murder. This is getting quite serious. And madness. <laughs> in the movie that makes a scene of the crime. Clue. It's not just a game anymore. So I'm curious, do you remember ever like first hearing about this movie? Um, yes. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I have never played the board game. What? Which is crazy. I was sent, um, like a version of it with the alienists. They kind of did a board game that was basically Clue, but with their own characters. Hmm. Um, and that's the only one that I've ever had or played, which is just crazy to me because I I love that kind of stuff. Um, (laughs) and so... I just always thought, well, I feel like I should either play the game first before I watch this movie. And so I always kept, you know, putting it off. Um, But yeah. Oh, and then along came Sam Nolan. It was like, nope, can't (laughs) wait any longer. It's now or never, Kubit (laughs) Kanik. For real. I love that. So I I apologize for tarnishing that that potential connection. (laughs) Well, what I... I don't even know what came first, the board game or the the movie. Uh, the, the board game is came well before the movie. Okay. I, I, I looked up earlier. It's weird. I, I did not know this until like literally an hour ago. <laughs> the The game actually was invented in 1949 and was originally called Cluedo. C l u e d o. I don't know what that's about. Hmm. Like I guess it's just I guess it's just a, f- a, a an interesting spin on the word clue, and they eventually just decided, f it, we'll do clue instead. So that happened early on in the process. Um, but yeah, it's been around forever. Uh, mm-hmm. And I will say this right now: I'm gonna I haven't seen them all, but I'm willing to bet best movie based off of a board game. Battleship I... came close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't watch very many, but I, I think that was why I had put this one off for so long. Because I was like, I just can't imagine what that's going to be like. But it definitely um, was very good in that respect. It's it's fascinating because I remember not hearing about this movie first. My first memory is being amazed that it existed. I played this mm. game all the time as a kid. Like it was always perfectly suited like to the way my mind works and the way it's kind of constantly analyzing things and thinking about a bunch of different things at once. And my eyes sort of dart around the room a lot. Like that's kind of my personality. Uh, and so it's always been right up my alley. And I remember thinking there's a clue movie. That's probably really boring. And as it turns out the the adaptation from game to movie is more spiritual than anything they kind of took like the most basic elements of it and then and just transferred it into a little bit more of a conventional 
murder mystery that a, a mm. lot of which had been uh, kind of coming about in the 1970s and before um and yeah it was written by the director jonathan lynn who this is actually his debut feature he would go on to do such comedies as my cousin Vinny and sergeant bilko mm. among others so a very comedically inclined director it was co-written i did not know this until i saw the credits earlier today it was co-written by john landis director of uh, a lot of comedies from that era a lot of some of which still hold up to this day a lot of them do not. I'm looking mm. at you, Animal House and Kentucky Fried Movie. Those have not aged particularly well, but Blues <laughs> Brothers is great. Did an extra milestone about that one earlier this year with my friend Tyler. Little shameless plug for that one. And yeah, it's very much that sort of zany, a little random sense of humor, but not in the same way as uh, something like Airplane. I would say, which had just came mm-hmm. out earlier, where that is almost like unprecedented levels of randomness, where it doesn't even matter if there's a joke there, they're going to make it. You know what I'm saying? The mm-hmm. sense of humor in this movie is all very environmental. It's all centered around the characters and the environment and the situation. They don't deviate a lot from it, but they managed to find a lot of really hilarious stuff. In this movie. So it is at this point, I should have, I really should have asked this earlier, but what did you think of Clue having just seen it for the first time in the past couple of days? I really enjoyed it. Um, I wasn't expecting to be um, surprised Hmm. as I was because I love Agatha Christie. I really am a huge like murder mystery fan. Um, And so I thought, oh, I'm going to be. I'm definitely going to be able to tell who did this um, <laughs> and like where this is going to go. And I really ha- had no idea. So um, it was really great to um, experience that and um, love Madeline Kahn more than anyone. Yes. Um, so I just really loved uh, getting to see a performance that I haven't seen before. There's every actor is so perfectly tailored to their performance in this movie that it's kind of it's kind of remarkable i wish i'd seen this years ago because you gotta imagine this is another one where it's any actor's dream to be cast in this movie Mm -hmm. i i only know michael bikin from um better call saul so (laughs) seeing him in this role is just uh very interesting and very cool (laughs) Yeah, a lot of the uh, some of the actors in this movie you you are more recognizable than others. Among them, mm-hmm. you've got uh, Eileen Brennan, Madeline Kahn, of course, the great Madeline Kahn, I should say, from uh, Young Frankenstein and many other things. And also, same year as Back to the Future, Christopher Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it becomes all the more clear how much they had to age up Christopher Lloyd for Back yeah. to the Future. <laughs> I did not realize that until watching this movie is crazy. <laughs> it's so funny. I thought that it I thought for the longest time that Christopher Lloyd was just one of those actors who's looked 55 years old since the 80s but it turns out (laughs) no that was just impeccable makeup work that was done Mm -hmm. on back to the future it's not like charles bronson who's been 50 years old since birth it's like (laughs) that was some remarkable work i think my favorite example of that and this is a tangent but we're here so why not my favorite (laughs) example of that is max von sedow in the exorcist i don't know who designed the makeup 
for that movie, but they predicted so eerily accurately how Max von Sydow would look like almost 50 years later that it's kind of freaky. Mm. (laughs) so that's always been the kind of the single best uh instance of of uh aging someone up but yeah got christopher lloyd in this movie you got uh leslie ann warren uh michael mckean who you mentioned earlier martin mole and the great tim curry who plays wadsworth (laughs) the butler i love tim curry so much in this movie (laughs) I think especially at the end, like he'd been a fun Mm -hmm. character up until that point, but it's not until he starts saying like, all right, I know what happened, but to do so, I'm going to have to explain everything. And not only Mm -hmm. that, but run around to the locations where that happens. It is a divine work of comedic acting to, to the, of the kind that I don't even think I would have been sure that Tim Curry was capable of before seeing this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when murder mysteries kind of get into that, let me explain, uh, kind of part of the (laughs) plot, it's so easy for it to get boring, but um, definitely not in this movie, which is great. I was I was reminded of in Murder on the Orient Express, the Sidney Lumet version. Have you ever seen that one? I haven't, actually. They they have that sequence where yeah it's Albert Finney as Detective Poirot who just <laughs> says like all right well I'm gonna explain everything that happened and he does it in a very stead fashion like it still it mm-hmm. fits with the tone of what was going so far but it's one of those things where you I'm I I hadn't thought about this until right the second but could this be considered like almost a parody or even or a satire even of murder mysteries do you think absolutely oh my gosh absolutely because i think um i mean so many of the characters are uh kind of parodies of of tropes within especially agatha christie uh stories Mm -hmm. the maid is french and (laughs) um what they try to make into a bimbo kind of and like um yeah, I think there's a black widow uh, <laughs> woman and the butler. And so, uh, yeah, I definitely see that being considered that way. It's weird. It seems obvious now that I've now that it occurred to me. I guess it's just <laughs> it just I hadn't thought of it in those terms. I also just mm-hmm. finished the movie like an hour and a half ago. So <laughs> maybe that explains it. But yeah, I Probably. just I guess I was just sort of going on the notion that this is just a murder mystery that's a little bit heightened. Uh, and mm-hmm. then I I realized all too late, this is a lot a bit heightened. Like, it's, it's really, really remarkably hilarious. And yeah, basically the deal with the movie is that the six... Uh, these six strangers show up. They've all received a mysterious letter saying, come to this address. It's this big mansion and it's a dark and stormy night because of course it is. And they're all the characters from the games, the little avatars that you play as uh, in the board game. They're just, you know, these little colored uh, talismans that you move around the board and everything. They don't really have distinct personalities. In this movie, every single one of them uh, is, is, makes a remarkably distinct impression. I love mm. that Miss White is dressed all in black. Like, that's always one of my favorite things. Like, they could have <laughs> so easily color-coded these characters, and they didn't, and I really respect that. 
And uh, yeah, they all show up and none of them know why, except for uh, Tim Curry, of course, who's just this very eccentric butler who just seems to have everything in place and seems to know where to be at every second. And uh, they realize like, well, they we don't know who our host is or who invited us here and everything. And then some murders get murdered along the way <laughs> a lot of them over the course of the movie and it just it just keeps escalating keep going they eventually like pair off into groups they eventually get a hold of all the weapons also from the game i found out a fun fact that the mansion uh that they use in this movie which is mostly a sound stage that they uh, filmed around but mm-hmm. it is the architecture of it is designed in such a way that it's accurate to the board game to the layout of the board game oh, complete wow. complete with the secret passages like they go to the same uh the from to and from the same room so that's really really impressive yeah that attention to detail uh I found out in doing a little bit of research for this movie that Tim Curry was actually like the third choice to play Wadsworth the butler. I think it was Rowan Atkinson, which would have been fun. Uh, Someone else whose name I don't remember. And then Tim Curry was the one that they went with because they couldn't get the others. And I wonder, I wonder at what point did they realize like, oh, we really lucked out with this one. So I think things worked out okay, you know? Mm hmm. And how envious those other actors who passed on the role or couldn't do it, how regretful they probably were. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it's it's kind of like the whole thing where Billy Crystal was originally going to voice Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story and mm-hmm. said like, no, no one's going to see that movie. And it ended up being just this huge hit and was like, oh, OK, so I got to take the next role they offer me. Mike Wazowski, got it. <laughs> I'll take it. I love that role, though, too. Mike Wazowski is great. I can't imagine anyone else as mm-hmm. as Mike. So I think th- some things just work out in the end, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets me to wondering, like, what what things did we not luck out on? You know, like, was there an even better actor who could have played, like, I don't know. Uh, 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 oh, gosh, why am I blanking on literally everything? Is there a better actor who could have played, like, Professor Plum in this movie that we just never realize so who knows who knows maybe but yeah and uh and uh, actually another funny bit of uh, almost casting was that carrie fisher was originally going to play miss scarlet the character ultimately played by leslie ann warren who i think really really shines in the role i wonder mm-hmm. how carrie fisher would have done uh but at the time she was just entering rehab so she mm. could not do it so uh i i hope everything worked out for her so from from what i can tell it did at least for at least at the time but yeah so so I want to ask what's what are some things that uh, besides just how funny and zany it is because of course what are some other things that really stuck out to you about Clue that uh, that 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 you were impressed by Um I think the um construction of reveal of um of kind of the murder plot and how that kind of plays out is amazing. Um, which I mean, you probably expect from the game of it, but, um, it also, like you said, I'm surprised that, um, the game doesn't have these kind of characters because they feel very like 
um, intrinsic to the the theme of it and like the plot. Um, so I love that. And I think it does such a great job of making it seem like it really could be anyone. I, I really, as through watching it, I was like, I know these people, but I really don't know these people. And, um, that's so great in a murder mystery. So I love that. It's always such a really impressive feat of acting when reveals like this are made in whatever mm-hmm. genre, whether it's comedy, drama, whatever it is. And and I'd, I would be so fascinated to go back and rewatch this movie now, knowing some of the reveals, not not only like, mm-hmm. you know, who did it, of course, which is kind of the biggest question of them all, but sort of these mm-hmm. little individual aspects of their characters that get revealed over time we find out very early that all six of these characters are in one way or another uh being blackmailed uh blackmailed blackmailed by their host mr body who is very just has a very on the nose name yes and i would be i would be really curious to to see this again seeing like okay so how do i look at this performance differently now that i know more of their past that they haven't revealed to the other characters, but that I know. I think Mm -hmm. something else really notable about what you were talking about earlier, how it's impossible to get a line on who maybe could have done it is that not only does the movie play very coy with it and sort of never really give any hints or indications that it may have been any one person over the other, but Mm -hmm. there is no to use the you know, longstanding uh, uh, narrative term, there is no straight person. There is no one who's meant to sort of counteract the zany antics of everyone else. They're all... And and what's most impressive about that is that they're all different kinds of heightened. Like, none of them are just sort of uh, just sort of the straight person like the Adam West Batman so to speak that's kind of the mm-hmm. function that I that I feel like that version of the character played none of them are that but also none of them are the same kind of crazy they all have a different sort of way of carrying themselves sort of a different attitude a different temperament that 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 makes it come across in such a way that again like you were saying you sort of know them and don't know them in such a way that you have no idea if they're acting out of character or not because it's mm-hmm. all so unusual, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I love is that um <laughs> and this is kind of a this is kind of a random small detail, but early in the movie as they're all sort of arriving at the mansion miss scarlet's car has broken down and like she's got the hood open and stuff trying to figure out what's wrong with it she sees professor plum driving up and uh he offers her a ride and everything and then she leaves her headlights on which is just (laughs) me having having made that mistake several times i'm like well there's your problem it's gonna it's gonna drain the battery there miss scarlet but that's just a small thing so if you notice that don't worry i noticed it too i did not (laughs) fair enough fair enough uh yeah what what are some other things that really uh, stuck out to you having only just seen it the first time um i think there's a great balance of uh, physical comedy and uh, very witty 
comedy within the dialogue, which I always appreciate a good balance of those two. Um, Mm -hmm. I noticed that. Nice. Yeah, I think that's uh, especially I think the physical comedy sort of really takes the stage later in the movie mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. but it's there all throughout and there's a lot of just really uh they're just really putting their all into this movie all these actors they're like really exaggerating everything to make it as funny as possible but they're also not giving short shrift to the actual dialogue itself to and mm-hmm. and it's a good thing they did because i think it's i think this movie has a damn good ratio when it comes to uh like joke success you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like there are the only thing that i kind of had a few reservations about were that there were a few sort of i'll just say aspects of the of the uh of the humor that came across as like maybe a little prurient maybe a little adolescent little mean-spirited uh but also i feel like that's probably just us looking back and feeling that way now i'm sure in the 80s this was you know perfectly normal and stuff uh did mm-hmm. that kind of thing occur to you at all while you were watching this um yeah i mean there are definitely jokes that would not and even like characteristics of characters that i don't think um would pass today yeah but that's how it is i think mm-hmm. yeah i think it still plays perfectly fine it's just the they're there so it's nothing super egregious or anything but yeah mm-hmm. um i think I, I i do feel the need to sort of discuss the ending a little bit so we're gonna say we're gonna like do a little warning and stuff but before we do that is there anything else bef- aside from the ending that that we haven't mentioned yet that you wanted to bring up I don't think so. Yeah, I think I think that it's it's a it's a well made movie. It's a uh, it's a very well produced and acted movie. It's not a terribly complex one, so I, I think we pretty much covered it. So yes. the ending of this movie is very iconic, and actually, I knew about the ending before ever seeing it. Had you had you heard oh. about the way the ending is structured before seeing it? No. No, I I truly knew nothing about hmm. the plot or anything, which is remarkable. Nice. So I'm I'm glad that we got to uh, sort of discover it together. And so mm-hmm. I got to know what was your reaction, uh, reaction, reaction? <laughs> Just full of misspeaking words today. What was your reaction to kind of the bizarre uh, fourth wall breaking? unorthodox ending ending into this and did you laugh as hard as i did when it was happening i loved it be and i think that um if it would have just been a one simple ending it wouldn't have really served the board game it's uh <laughs> as well as this one did and i am i mean i think the um the ultimate ending was definitely the most interesting um version and so i think they structured it pretty well in that regard too yeah i even having known about like kind of the way it plays out i was still just like howling laughing as kind of throughout the entire climax but especially when it's revealed like there's this dramatic conclusion we find out that it was miss scarlet all along and then all of a sudden 
that's one thing that could have happened. But also, mm-hmm. this plays a completely different ending. <laughs> and then it does, it, you know, where I think it was Miss Peacock did it that second time. And it says, mm-hmm. but here's what really happened. And it turns out that it was actually uh, kind of everyone at Everyone. Once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is similar to another murder mystery, but it would be a spoiler to say which one. So I won't mm. tell you, but there's another, a, a more sincere murder mystery that has that same ending or that same kind of ending. But yeah, mm. if you've seen it, you know, and I'm not ruining anything. You're going to have to yeah. tell me after this episode because I'm blinking I, and I, I want to know. I will tell you after this episode. Um, okay. <laughs> I found out there was actually a fourth ending that they filmed and ended up cutting from the movie just because they huh. thought it didn't really fit in. And it's where it turns out it was Wadsworth all along, as in like literally was responsible for every single one of the deaths and mm. tries to like speed off in a cop car and then ultimately gets attacked by police dogs who are hiding in the backseat unbeknownst to him. Mm. Sounds like a fun ending. I'm sure that scene exists somewhere like on a, on some home video release or something. I watched this on uh, Amazon prime, so I don't think mm-hmm. they had anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, th- I think the way it plays is uh is really wonderful and i actually forgot to mention this earlier but one of one or both of the writers i can't remember exactly who have this really bizarre claim that they made and i wish i would have looked more into the authenticity of this but they claimed that they sort of got together and wrote this movie with a sort of writer's room consisting of playwright tom stoppard steven sondheim and Anthony Perkins. What wow. the hell? <laughs> How I would love to be on the f- a fly on the wall in that room as they're constructing mm-hmm. this madcap thing. Because as we know, Anthony Perkins wouldn't even hurt a fly. So we'd be safe. <laughs> Little psycho reference for, for, mm-hmm. you, uh, for you uh, Hitchcock fans out there. But... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's perfectly in line with the game where it's just this, you know, it's just sort of this random uh, outcome every single time. You've heard references to it where it's like, oh, it's so and so in the observatory with the rope and stuff like that. So it's mm-hmm. it's always something different, and so I love that it plays into that, incorporating the game just enough that it's clearly an adaptation. Like it's definitely taking cues from the intricacies of the board game, but also. Mm-hmm just telling its own story and uh, fleshing it out in just such such a way that I found really impressive. And I was actually surprised to find out that this got a rather mixed reaction at the time when it was Hmm. first released. I'm curious why that was. I'm wondering if it was maybe just too weird for them, if if, uh, they just hadn't seen anything like it, or if they just weren't in the mood for it at the time, and it's only now and we're able to sort of realize uh how how well done it is in comparison to other similar movies do you have any any theory on that i don't yeah i mean i don't really know i'm trying to think of the kinds of comedies that were coming out at the same time mm-hmm. and blanking obviously yeah, um 
there was like uh, the Blues Brothers, which I mentioned earlier, and Airplane mm-hmm. and stuff. A lot of those mm-hmm. other John Landis movies. There was also Monty Python was still very mm-hmm. famous at the time. So I think it's certainly in line with those, at least. Like it's not a distinct departure from any of those. So I couldn't say really. It's a, it's a strange thing. Both Siskel mm-hmm. and Ebert were initially disapproving of this movie. So <laughs> who knows? Um but yeah, it has gained a very respectable uh, cult audience, and I'm glad to have finally discovered why. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. So, uh, so is is there anything else that uh, that you, that you wanted to uh, discuss about the movie Clue before we close out the show for this week? No, I think we've covered everything that I have yeah. to say. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty much it. I think again, this is not not the most complex movie, but I think one certainly worthy of revisiting uh, and worthy of celebrating the anniversary of. And I will say, all three of these movies are worthy of the extra milestone treatment. And I was glad to have given the given that to them. That's a weird sentence to have put together <laughs> just now. I was glad to have done it with you. Emily Kubin and I and I hope you had as good of a time as I did. I did. Awesome. So, uh, for listeners who maybe don't know, and they should, if they want to know, where else can they find you on this web that is worldwide of ours? Um, I'm always on Twitter, Emily Kub underscore, um, where anything I write will be put on there. I um, and you can find all of my articles at Film School Rejects, um, especially if you like older movies. I have a column called Beyond the Classics, which I um, cover movies that n- probably wouldn't be on Extra Milestone, but are yeah. still important. To me, challenge accepted. Um, Go on. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and yeah, nice. Yeah, definitely do that. It, it's uh, uh, you're gonna want to you're gonna want to follow everything that Emily does because it's all fantastic. I'm <laughs> also. I say it because it's true. I'm also on Twitter at Nolan Sam. I barely do anything on there. Like it's it's almost pointless to follow me on Twitter. So what you can do instead, if you want to see me do. Uh, all these various impressions that I've done, all these silly voices and everything, you can follow me on the social media app known as TikTok. I'm on there oh making silly videos. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> it's a fun time. So that's the exact same handle at Nolan Sam. That's where I do most of my work. So yeah. <laughs> And also, I'm on Letterboxd, uh, just my name, Sam Nolan, and I'm always here on this show, Extra Milestone, never more than a week away. Wrap it up, take it down to the corner, and uh, and uh, and uh, t- t- take that to the bank. I don't know where I was going with that sentence, but I think I got there. So without yeah. any so without any further ado, from a a, a dark and stormy night on a battleship with my friend Harvey. I'm Sam Noland. <laughs> I'm Emily Kumkanik. And we'll see you on the next Extra Milestone. <laughs>